This is the Saucer Afterlife uh, listener feedback thing for Al, Preston, a chair, and a monster. The concluding segment in our Philadelphia Experiment Montauk Project um, epic journey. So we've got some uh, some great questions and, and feedback and comments from listeners ranging from on the Chizo Media Patreon to social media to email to comments on the website. But before we get to that, I wanted to look at just briefly a few books that um, are related to this topic that I acquired in the course of my investigations that ended up being a little uh, a little tangential or, or not necessarily necessary for what we did on the episode. I'm glad I have them, but uh, yeah, it was a big topic and keeping it uh, relatively compact was a little bit difficult. First up is a 1968, I think 68 book by um, by Brad Steiger and Joan Rittenauer called, I'm not sure what it's called. I think looking at the spine, it's called New UFO Breakthrough. But the uh, the design of the cover is uh, is kind of um, kind of irritating. It's uh, no, I guess new title page says new UFO breakthrough too. But the cover page says our concept and understanding of flying saucers are totally wrong. So say the bizarre and terrifying much bigger letters, Allende letters, smaller letters. Are these incredible documents the big letters, new UFO breakthrough, and then below that sort of a swirly, spirally vortex thing with a question mark in it. Um, so are these incredible documents the new UFO breakthrough? Small letters, an exclusive report on the mysterious correspondence that triggered a special naval research study. So looking at the uh, the table of contents is um, is really interesting. A lot of it mirrors the later Steiger Philadelphia experiment book we talked about on the episode. But we've got uh, Strange Flying Saucer Mysteries, which um, includes Al Bender and Morris K. Jessup. Uh, Terror in Oklahoma, um, a child is injured by a flying ashtray. Uh, the Silencing of Wilhelm Reich, recent UFO landings. And then when we get to chapter five, about 50, 60 pages in, the bizarre mystery of M.K. Jessup and the Allende letters. And then the book continues on with humanoids, ape men or robots, Adam II, the serpent people and memories of Atlantis, the mystery under the seas, the smoky god, Deros and other dwellers of inner earth, and the final chapter, the triumph of the alchemists, and then Cywar, an afterthought by Joan Rittenauer. So this book is, is not just about the Allende letters. Actually, it's, it's sort of the Allende letters sort of compressed into a book about several other sort of related UFO topics. So the actual Allende chapter in the book seems to be a lot of, of retreading of the magazine article he, um, he, uh, he published a bit before this, I think in 1967. But one of my favorite things about it is the fact that there are some um, quotations from letters Steiger received after that article was published. Um, he says, several correspondents told of being harassed by ominous and effective agents after they had witnessed UFO activity. One letter stated that the correspondent could, quote, tell things that would make everything clear. A follow-up letter from the author produced the reply, they found out, they won't let me talk. Another letter began, your work is so accurate that you scare me. Your writings seek to explain the mysteries of the world in a scientific way. I wish I could tell you more, but we who are controlled could upset their whole system if we speak. Therefore, these people who direct 
us make certain that we do not speak. Study your own writings, and you may discover the real truth. Um, yeah, so it's – and the, the letters you received are not necessarily always specific to the Philadelphia experiment. So it's it's an interesting book. It's it's a nice sort of vintage, very late 60s-looking thing. I, I don't think it's essential for understanding the Philadelphia experiment, but – I'm not uh, I'm not upset I have it mostly because it wasn't that expensive. Next up, we have a novel. It is called Thin Air by George E Simpson and Neil R Berger and the, who also co-wrote the book Ghost Boat, which is also a Philadelphia experiment sounding thing. This came out in 1978, so you know not uh, not too long before the Philadelphia experiment book by Berlitz and Moore came out. Now Bielik talked about this book and said that the authors were unknown, and he said that in a very sinister way and implied that they might have been employed to write disinformation about the Philadelphia experiment because it's you know very different from his telling. There's no time travel, for example. Um, but um, the, just I went on Goodreads, and George Simpson and Neil Berger wrote like a dozen sort of pulpy paperback adventure mysteryish books in the 1970s and 1980s not very not very mysterious at all and the story of the disappearing ship was was out there it was in ufo books by 1978 when this came out they could have read they could have read steiger's book about all of this and because steiger was a very popular author right and gotten the idea that way so you know it's easy to make things sound uh, sound you know shady. So the uh, the cover copy says, they faded. They went zero. The men, the ship, everything. They disappeared into big sort of book title logo, thin air. The back cover copy. At the war's end, the men of the USS Sturman were ordered to join hands on the ship's deck, ignorant pawns in a top secret Navy experiment. An alarm sounded. A humming began. Moments later, a common surge of desperate, disoriented terror was felt by every crewman as they watched the ship beneath them and finally their own bodies disappear into thin air. Now, after more than 25 years, a man wakes up screaming from a nightmare having something to do with the Navy. Another, hopelessly insane, draws in a childish scrawl pictures of figures holding hands. And naval investigator Nicholas Hammond scratches at the iceberg tip of a complex network of cover-up and deceit, hiding a scientific breakthrough that could save the world or destroy it. I haven't read this yet. It's um, it's like 300 pages of very small type in a, uh, a sort of pocket mass market paperback sort of format. So I'm going to, I'm going to get to this at some point. This looks like a good summer vacation read maybe. Wow. What does that say about me? I'm going on vacation with my family. I'm taking this book about the Philadelphia experiment with me. I need help. Okay. Next up, we've got Montauk, The Alien Connection by Stuart Swerdlow, the guy who was sent back to, you know, shoot Jesus because to get, oh, that's right. I forgot why. To get the blood to um, make a race of genetic clone Christs or something. Anyway, yeah, Stuart Swerdlow. This book covers his own experiences as part of the Montauk Project and with the evil gray aliens. And it, um, 
And then his life afterward, his marriage, his, his family, and how he's continued to uh, to sort of develop and recover from these experiences. This is um, it, it has some Montauk content. Obviously, uh, he talks about meeting meeting Preston Nichols, and it's edited by by Peter Moon and published by Sky Books, who publishes all the other Montauk stuff. So it's it's very much part of the Montauk canon. But it's you know Swordlow's stuff goes off at a kind of tangent and actually probably would be a good uh, a good topic for its own episode at some point but not for a while i need some i need some time and space away from montauk stuff and the final sort of sort of extra book is also edited by peter moon came out from sky books and it is the philadelphia experiment murder by Alexandra Bruce, and she was the woman who was interviewed on the the disinformation TV documentary, not disinformation disinformation documentary um, segment that uh, I, I played a bit from. She's the one who told us about uh, Preston's technique. So this is yeah the the Philadelphia experiment murder, Philadelphia experiment murder, and there's a subtitle that isn't actually on the cover, which seems odd, but uh, the subtitle is Parallel Universes and the Physics of Insanity. And one of the things that this book goes into quite a bit, and one of the reasons I find it uh, fun, is that this goes in-depth on the connection between the Philadelphia Experiment and uh, Phil Schneider, who supposedly was injured in the Dulce Base uh, incident back in the uh, back in the day, um, and appears in all of that underground uh, underground base stuff. And the story is that Schneider's father was a defector from Nazi Germany who um, was, you know, then part of the Philadelphia experiment. And there are some, um, and it sort of goes on about this, and it, it, it sort of treats the, the Schneider thing relatively uh, credulously. Uh, what I will say about that is um, Check out Adam Goretli's Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks. That's always that, that's my standing advice for most things about the Dulce base. But also, I think he talks about it in the book. And if not, I think it's on his website. There's a copy of Schneider's FBI file floating around that is very interesting reading. So one of the, the things I love about this book is there is a picture. Final briefing aboard the USS Eldridge, 9th August, 1943. It was supposedly discovered in Oscar Schneider's basement. That was Phil's dad. Um, it's a bunch of men in a briefing room. The picture looks like it could have been taken anywhere from 1940 to about 1960. And this photo has appeared in, in several places in connection with, with the Eldridge. And the, uh, the Bielik debunked site that I mentioned in the episode did a really good job of investigating this photo and then comparing it to deck plans and uh, interviewing people who would have been familiar with ships in the Navy in 1943 that were supposedly where this would have taken place. And this room is not um, – is not, uh, this isn't a room on the Eldridge or any ship of the Eldridge's, Eldridge's class. It's from the 1960s. Um, and you can tell because easily visible in the shot are sort of fluorescent tube lights that were not a 1943 thing. But all that aside, my favorite thing about Bruce's book here is um, she says in the caption, the above photograph was discovered in Oscar Schneider's basement after his death. The man in the front with the blonde hair and prominent chin has been identified as either Don or Val Thor. Yes, Val Thor from Stranger in the Pentagon. Um, yeah, 
So it's it's an interesting book. It uh, it sort of goes all over the place. At time at times, editor Peter Moon jumps in with some sort of like what what then she's not quite right about the information here. So it, it's it's very um, it, it's very weird, and I honestly don't think it's essential for understanding either the Philadelphia Experiment or the Phil Schneider stuff. But any book that mentions Val Thor is is a book that uh, that I enjoy. So that's uh, that's some tangential material related to the Philadelphia Experiment. Um, I don't see myself diving back into any of these anytime soon, unless it's the Stuart Swerdlow stuff, which might make an interesting episode or might make a complete headache for me. Okay, now let's go to the Saucer Life for her views on the Philadelphia Experiment film. All right, we are here in the studio with the Saucer Wife. Saucer Wife, how are you? I'm doing well, thank are, you. Are you? Yeah. Okay, even though you're here. Uh, yes. Even though I made you watch the Philadelphia Experiment movie. Uh, you've made me watch worse. Have I? Doctor Who? You're just trying to rile me up with that because that, that's hurtful. That That's hurtful. Okay, so Philadelphia Experiment movie, basic plot as well as I could sort of sum it up. We watched it. We sort of live tweeted it on Saturday night, um, the other Saturday night. So you've got an invisibility experiment. You've got two guys on the ship. They jump overboard when everything's going crazy and they end up in, um, in 1983 from 1943 to 1983. So if you're paying attention, that's exactly the story Al Bielik said was real shockingly, but not until after the movie came out. So you've got the time travel thing. You've got like some sort of space-time vortex threatening to destroy the planet, right? Yes. And you've got uh, one of the guys needs to go back in time to smash stuff up in order to fix everything. So that's that's the the plot. So what did you think of the time travel stuff? I don't think it was ever really explained. I mean, they jumped overboard. Right. And they ended up... They came, they shot or they fell out of the hole, right. right? But it was never explained how that all happened. Did you want an explanation? Well, you just asked me what I thought. I sort of meant what did you think of how the time travel was was handled? You know, when you have people who are forty years out of date, they're coming to the present. You know, what sorts of shenanigans do they get involved? I phrased the question poorly, but um, okay, that now now yes, okay, um. I thought there would be more shock. I thought there would be more, just more disbelief. That they were 40 years yeah. in the future. Yeah. They, they took it sort of in their stride, didn't they? Yeah. One of the things about it that I thought was that they were confused by things I don't think they should have been confused about. Like Yeah, I remember we Googled a lot of stuff. Like, when did this? Yeah, and it was all stuff they, they should have at least had some sort of clue about. Automatic transmissions in cars. They were a few years old. I mean, they might not have actually ever used one, but they would have heard about it. Um, all see, so they get in a car, and he says, "Where's the clutch?" And the the woman says, "It's an automatic." And what what one of the characters should have said was, "Oh, like Oldsmobile's hydromatic or something like that." I, I would have. Well, I think yeah. in that it, it, the plot, so. the plot, they had to abduct or kidnap this woman. Right. So that that was a plot point. Oh my gosh, we can't use an automatic. We need her to come with us. Well, okay. I yeah. I, I, okay, you're right. You're right. Without, if, if they would have been able to drive the car themselves, they would. They even, wouldn't need her. And they needed her. Uh, well, tell tell me your thoughts about the the um, 
the 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 love story, the romance angle in this. Oh, gosh, it was horrible, horrible. So she, uh, what is her name? I don't even remember. I don't her know name. her name. She ends up driving these people around, and then uh, something, some car crash or something. They get hauled in. One of them gets hauled into jail. The other one ends up in the hospital. But she ends up not pressing charges and comes and bails the guy out of jail. And it's she spent all of two hours with this guy and she feels invested in what happens to him. I'm invested in our relationship ever since you carjacked me a couple of year, a couple hours ago, right? Yeah, it's, I it's, mean it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. However, it should be known that this woman was driving out to L.A. Uh for a job. Yeah. She'd quit her other job, sold all of her earthly belongings. All she had was what was with her in the car. And we meet her when she's on the phone and someone has given away the job in L.A. So I don't know that she's made the best life choices leading up to this. Pretty judgmental of you. She's not a real person, so I think I'm okay. Wow, wow! What do you say about me when I'm not around? Good, oh. you're a real person. You true? I am I? I yeah. More I mean, or less. I'm just. I'm talking about her. Her as a character. Did you think she was a real person? No, no, I didn't think she was a real person. I. Oh, okay. okay. I just want to make sure you do know that movies are not real. Why are you being hurtful tonight? What did you think was going on with the giant sort of swirling vortex and sort of the the threat to the planet? Did you sort of feel like the visceral gut punch of, oh my gosh, the tension, what's going to, what, what are they going to do? No. Ne- neither did I. I, um, I. I thought that that whole sort of raising the stakes by, you know, the earth being turned inside out or whatever, I thought it was dumb. This is This is how I would have done it. I would have said, you know why you have to go back in time and smash the machines? Because if you don't, because you have traveled through time, Correct. you are going to like, I don't know, be turned inside out physically. To save your life, you have to go back and 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 you know right. trash the thing. Make it a make it a personal yeah. sort of thing instead of we've got a giant Or to sort save, of, you know, your best friend right there's life it, it, or it could have been or all of humanity moving forward yeah it could have been more like that um no and then whenever it was explained like okay so the hole opens up in the sky and nobody knows why or where or oh can we talk about the guy the scientist yeah let's talk about the scientist my main main issue with this movie is he fails yes he does at the Philadelphia experiment mm-hmm. fails. Mm-hmm. So then 40 years later, they let him do it again. And presumably they let him be working on these things for, for 40 years, 40 years of investment into yes. this, this failed. And they let him do it again. Now it was never explained whether there were people in this town. Yeah. He, they made a town vanish basically, right? Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't explained whether there were actual people in this town or if it was a ghost town or what it was. But if you have an epic failure like that, are you, I mean, is your boss going to let you try it again? I don't know. I've never failed on that scale, so I don't really know what the consequences would be. I would think not. And you think, okay, again, this is just a movie. But 
all of the money and resources and whatnot. I mean, I know our government wastes money, but that's a lot of money. It is, but luckily it's probably all funded through drug trafficking. It's how they fund the black budget for usual stuff. So, ah, okay. Yeah, see, good to know. The more you know. All right, Philadelphia experiment. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and thumbs in the middle. It's not the worst thing you've ever had me watch. Is that a thumbs in the middle? That's a. It wasn't the worst thing you've ever made me watch. I say thumbs in the middle. That that's mine. And next week, what we're going to be watching is the Philadelphia Experiment Two. Uh, from- now, I did not sign up for that. Sure. Positive. Okay. I will I will have uh have Fred check the paperwork and we'll see exactly what you signed on for. You do that, sir. I will. Our legal department is the best. All right, thank you, darling. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, let's get to those listener questions and comments now. Kyle on Patreon says, there's something deeply disturbing about someone describing their mother as one of my father's live-in women. Yes, I um, I agree. Uh, and then Kyle goes on to say, I'm in my mid-30s and grew up in this sort of weirdness. So the, to me, Montauk is just sort of a given. Was there a rumbling of an urban legend about the Philadelphia experiment before, before Carlos Allen? Similar, was there an internet buzz about something happening at Montauk before Bielik? Or did these men invent these mythologies out of whole cloth? I, I think it's invented largely out of uh, out of whole cloth. Um, there really wasn't anything about the Philadelphia experiment before uh, before Carl Allen or Carlos Allende, and there really wasn't an internet before Bielik. So um, yeah, they sort of come from from those sources. And uh, Kyle then says, something strikes me about a lot of these conspiracy universe tales. Super soldiers, Montauk, secret space alien, secret, secret space program, alien breeding programs, etc. The characters are absolutely integral to the whole, but it's all done against their will. It seems like such an on-the-nose metaphor for the times, feeling helpless about the reality that seems forced upon you, while at the same time feeling like you're the only character, you're, only, you're the only character in a play. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying there. I, I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, also on Patreon, Stuart uh, says he read Wizard, which is a biography of Tesla, and according to this, the alien messages Tesla obtained via radio were down to another inventor, Marconi, who had also invented the radio independently of Tesla. Tesla didn't know this, so thinking he was the sole inventor of the radio on Earth, decided it was the Martians. I get the impression that this wasn't too insane for the time, as I don't think astronomical equipment could get a clear view of Mars. Also, War of the Worlds. That makes sense. That makes sense that he was picking up sort of Marconi's radio signals and and not knowing Marconi or anybody else was sending radio signals. Sort of, you know, puts one and one together and gets Martians. Yeah. Andy on Patreon says, when he pointed out Al's term movie house, it reminded me of how Art Bell once snarkily commented that all of his time-traveling callers spoke the same modern English we do. I'm wondering if Al was purposely working in outdated terms here and there to subtly give himself more credibility as a man out of time. One phrase I've heard in several interviews was 90-day wonder school. I was in the military in the 90s and never heard that term. The Army, at least, thought 12 weeks was plenty of time to drill expertise into anyone. I don't know if I want to re-listen to his interviews to pick out more outdated phrases, but I just might be that bored. So I didn't talk about this on the episode, but the 90-day wonder thing refers to the U.S. Naval Reserve Midshipman School, which was an expedited naval officer training program that began in June 1940. Uh, The goal was to train naval reserve officers for expanding the fleet in preparation for 
you know, sort of ramping things up going to World War II. Basically, these were set up on university campuses around the United States, and it was basically a 90-day officer training school. So a little faster than than most um, officer training. And um, it was announced in June 1940 by President Roosevelt, which is a problem for Al Belick's story because he has himself going into the program a little earlier than it actually existed, which is, um, you know, kind of an issue. So that's the the origin of the 90-day wonder thing. So it's very much something that sort of shorthand that somebody who'd been through that might uh, might throw around. But um, yeah, doesn't really match up with, um, with uh, Bielik's story as far as the facts go. Okay, uh, next, Elbardo says, a really excellent job on the series. I've done some more cursory work looking into it, and it's a minefield. Minefield, rather. I have lots of thoughts on how this connects with modern mythos, but in the interest of keeping it light, have you read the latest, the last Pynchon book, Bleeding Edge? It leans into Montauk lore as a means of explaining the unreality of the post-9-11 world, and I'd highly recommend it. I had not read Bleeding Edge. I've read one Thomas Pynchon book, um, Crying of Lot 49, uh, for a 20th century lit course in college, but I did get Bleeding Edge to check that out, and I am enjoying it greatly so far. Laura asks, just how many times has Eisenhower been harassed by aliens? Also, I plan on getting so much use out of soft and gray facts in my life. Absolutely. Um, soft soft facts are that's, that's one of the new things I'm going to start using that term. Uh, Kirk says, uh, sure, Bielik sounded quite intelligent, but shame on anyone purporting to be a serious researcher who disregarded his many inconsistencies. Still, Bielik, fraud notwithstanding, was a saint compared to Preston. Kudos to you for doing the deep dives into dry and sometimes unpleasant material so we don't have to. You're welcome, Kirk. It's what I do. Uh, Rob um, Rob says uh, there's an engineer. This is on the website. There's an engineer named Bielik mentioned in as a friend of Ivan T. Sanderson's in Jacques Vallée's Forbidden Science, Volume 1. Vallée says of him, he throws the most extraordinary hypotheses around but never bothers to develop them or to resolve their contradictions. Sounds like the same guy. Yes, it certainly does, doesn't it? I haven't. Oh, it's been a while since I looked through the Forbidden Science thing, but um, that's a great find because you know Bielik and Sanderson were uh, were pals, and you know, like we said in the episode, Bielik was was sort of soaking in a lot of this uh, a lot of this culture before he came on to uh, came onto the scene. Lester says, "I hope he really was the bastard son of a USN bosun's mate." We can hope. Um, ben says, I've been binging your podcast for the few last few days. I remember hearing Al Bielik on Coast to Coast late one night and asking myself, is this a complete con or is it mental illness? The same can be said for most of the UFO movement. What's really going on here? And I don't mean in a paranoid way. Is it just trying to make money off of strange stories or is it something else? I think there's definitely a profit motive. I think there might be some mental illness in the sense of... um. I, I can't even remember the, the, the phrase, but but fantasy prone personalities, uh, sort of confabulating, uh, confabulating stories. I think some of it is misinterpretations of genuinely experienced anomalous events. I think some of it is disinformation or misinformation being spread by people for whatever reason. Um, 
I think it's I think it might be a little bit of everything. That's my current theory is that it's a little bit of everything except maybe actual aliens in flying ships. I think it might be almost anything but that. Chuck emails to say the single most unbelievable element I find in the entire saga of the Philadelphia experiment is the entirely implausible idea that anyone, no matter what incredible powers they are capable of or what comfy chair they are sat in, can create a good got bottle of Budweiser beer. That is that is um, a a question for the ages. I I decided to interpret that as he created a bottle of Budweiser that was sort of the platonic ideal of what a Budweiser drinker would think is good beer, which is a a very different thing from what I think is a good bottle of beer. Jim says, the more of these stories I hear, this is not from Twitter, the more of these stories I hear, the more I'm reminded of my kids telling stories that start out sounding at least vaguely plausible and swiftly devolve into interdimensional shenanigans. Yes, that's a great, that's a great way to put it, isn't it? Well, thank you so much for uh, for tagging along for our our trek through the Philadelphia experiment and related things. We'll be back next time with a a light fun topic: uh, fascist mystic William Dudley Pelly and his connection to the early UFO scene. Um, and then it lightens up, and, and then it lightens up. It, it it really does. So thanks a lot for for listening, and thanks for writing in with your comments and questions. It's been a lot of fun, and we do. I shouldn't say we. I do recommend the Philadelphia Experiment movie. I, I think it's it's a it's a harmless bit of of fun. So check it out. The Saucer Wife. I don't know if she would actually want the sort of moral responsibility of having recommended it to anybody. So. I say check it out. Anyway, talk to you later.